The children are dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. As we have been engaged in our study of 2 Timothy, we've, for the last few weeks, been in a protracted section of the book. I, I would submit to you that from about 1 6 all the way through 2.13 is one extended encouragement, exhortation by Paul for, for young Timothy to persevere in the faith, to persevere in ministry, to not be ashamed, to not be afraid, to be willing to suffer. And week after week, these themes have lined up and repeated themselves. Last week, we, we looked at Timothy being spoken to as a son, a spiritual son of Paul. Chapter 2, opening up my child. And this week, it continues as the Apostle Paul adds more and more reasons, more and more arguments, supplies more and more fuel to maintain Timothy's fires. And I trust that we will find this morning fuel to help us persevere in faith. As Paul is going to tell Timothy, and we'll see next week, we must persevere to the end. Look at verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And that's where this is headed up to. Next week will sort of be a crescendo of this point. Timothy, you have to make it to the end. And, and likewise, coming down through the ages to us, we have to persevere to the end. We have to trust in Christ to the end. We have to be believing to and through the end. And so we're going to pick up our text and, and preparing for next week, finishing Paul's first section of the book, encouraging Timothy to persevere, telling him to remember to serve the resurrected Lord. Let's read our passage this morning. 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of Abraham, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Lord God, we pray in the, in the following minutes that you would open our minds and our eyes and our hearts to hear and understand your word, and that through it we would gain instruction and encouragement, that through your word you would keep us believing, you would keep us persevering as we are conformed to the image of your Son and await his return. In Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8 picks up another imperative, another command of the apostle. We, we saw four of them last week. Paul told Timothy in verse 1 to be strengthened. He told Timothy in verse 2 to entrust what was entrusted to him to faithful men. And he tells Timothy to be ready to suffer. And he tells Timothy to think over what he has said. And a fifth imperative is now found in this passage. 
And our first point, remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it there in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of Abraham, as preached in my gospel. Now that may seem like an awfully strange thing for Paul to tell Timothy. But I think as we look at it and understand it, it won't be nearly as strange. Firstly, because if you have any awareness of Israel's history or any awareness of your own heart, you will echo what we sung today, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And how many times did Israel again and again, after the Lord delivered them, after the Lord supplied for them, go and worship other gods? And, and how often do we, practically speaking, after the Lord answers our prayers, after the Lord gives us grace, go after other things and live like practical atheists? But that isn't even really what, what Paul has in mind here. The word translated in the ESV is remember could probably be better translated be thinking on, have in mind. It's a present active verb. It's continuous action. Paul wants Timothy to constantly be having in mind the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants him to set his mind upon him. And as we look at the notion of perseverance and endurance, I think that begins to make more sense. It's similar to what the author of Hebrews says in, in chapter 12, to fix your gaze upon the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Paul wants Timothy, he tells Timothy it's critical, it's crucial for him to keep his mind fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know what that's like when something is exciting to us, when something we're passionate about, our, our mind goes back to it again and again. If you're an athlete and, and you're competing in the finals as a wrestler in high school, I, I made it to states one year. And, and once you are facing a championship match, it's, it's on your mind. Your mind keeps drifting back to it. Or maybe there's a movie or a TV show that's coming out that you're excited about, a season finale, and your mind keeps going back and back and back to it. What Paul's telling Timothy here is what your mind needs to keep going back to again and again and again. What you have got to exert energy to keep in your mind is Jesus Christ. Now that, that may seem simple. It may seem like a Christian platitude or something you might see in a bumper sticker, but it, it is profound. You want to fight sin, keep Jesus Christ in your mind. You want to be humble and fight pride, keep Jesus Christ in your mind. You want your faith not to flag or weaken, fix your mind on Christ. And Paul is even more specific. He wants Timothy not just to fix his mind on Christ, but on Jesus Christ literally as risen from the dead, as raised from the dead. And that struck me as another profound point. So often when we see pictures or images that people have drawn of Jesus, not only um, does he usually look Nordic or Aryan, which is, I would suggest you a mistake, um, but he's usually human or a baby. And I think the reason for that is we tend to be much more comfortable with humbled, glory-veiled, meek and mild Jesus. He's much more safe that way. And, and so we have a temptation to sort of gravitate towards the meeker, the milder, the gentler Jesus. And, and what Paul tells Timothy here is, no, no, no. I want you to fix in mind the Lord Jesus Christ as raised from the dead. Keep in mind the Apostle Paul's meetings with Jesus all occurred after the resurrection. 
And, and when Jesus shows up after the resurrection, he looks a little different, doesn't he? To turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Yes, it is a wonderful and glorious truth that the Lord Jesus emptied himself. He didn't hold on to his rights. He became a baby. He learned obedience. He, he was meek and gentle. But that was a temporary state of affairs. That is not his fixed position. And after the resurrection, he shows up this way in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9 through 18. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest, the hairs are his head, of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining of the sun in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I would submit to you, it is this resurrected Lord that the Apostle Paul wants Timothy to be focused on. Yes, there is plenty that we can learn in meditating on the humble Christ, the gentle Christ, the meek and mild baby. But the reality that the New Testament hits again and again and again is the resurrected Lord, the Lord of glory, the one of whom Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted on him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus who lives. This is the Jesus who is. This is the Jesus to whom we have to do. And this is the Jesus, the conquering, resurrected, eternal Son of God, that Paul says, Timothy, you've, you've got to set your mind on him. You've got to be going back again and again to him. It's, it's all too often for us to have our own version of Jesus that we want to think about. I, I recently saw a movie clip of, of a movie that I could not possibly recommend where this point was, was, was 
mocked, really. And in, in the movie clip, these people are sitting around dinner table and they're praying. And the guy who's praying his prayer is praying to baby Jesus. And as they begin to discuss, they talk, well, who do you, which Jesus do you pray to? And he says, well, I pray to baby Jesus with wings. And the guy next to him says, I pray to Jesus at a rock concert. And, and he goes on and on. And it's, it's blasphemous. But what the comedians are getting at is something true. We can sort of create our own personalized, private Jesus, who, who begins to look less and less like the Lord of glory and the sovereign Lord of the universe and becomes tamer and tamer and gentler. And quickly you get high five Jesus or peace Jesus or whatever version you're most comfortable with. And, and all of that we've got to resist. We, we have a temptation to, to humanify Jesus' deity, to deify his humanity. And what I mean by that is this. We take the the fact that Jesus is God, he is resurrected, he is living, he was dead and is now alive. He, he, he owns all of creation twice. He made it and he bought it. And we tone that down. We tone that down to, to human Jesus. And then we look at Jesus' earthly life and his sinlessness. And, and rather than gra grabbing encouragement from that, we say, well, Jesus, of course, was sinless. He was God. And we sort of picture Jesus walking around with the big S under his shirt, explaining how he was able to be faithful, explaining how he was able to persevere and endure. And Paul wants Timothy to have a robust and full understanding of Jesus' deity. And, that, and that's the blank there in 1A. That the resurrection again and again and again in the New Testament is what is used to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. Turning your Bibles to, to Romans 1. The, these two aspects, the, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, are, are twin themes that show up again and again in Scripture, probably nowhere more clearly than the introduction to Paul's letter to the Romans. So turn to Romans chapter 1 and you'll see this. And you see how the Apostle Paul uses the resurrection as proof for the deity of Christ. Romans chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, now there's the humanity, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There have been many religions on earth. Many people claim to be spiritual leaders. There's only one who has died and come back from death victorious. This sets Jesus apart. The resurrection is, is, is the historical fact without which Christianity cannot stand. There, there are many other religions that can exist simply as philosophies and, and ways of life and, and a value system. But without the resurrection at the center, Christianity crumbles. The proof that Jesus was who he said he was is the resurrection. The proof that he is sinless is seen in the resurrection. The, the proof that he is the son of God is seen in the resurrection. And Paul tells Timothy, again, remember, be thinking about, be meditating on the Lord Jesus Christ as raised from the dead, the resurrected Lord. He also tells Timothy, however, to, to think of Jesus and remember him as the son of David. The son of David. He says that in verse 8 again. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. 
And here, as we saw in Romans, in the blank there, is humanity. And, and the son of David carries with it more overtones than that. Not only does this emphasize that he truly was man, but probably most importantly, it ties in with all sorts of scriptural promises predicting this unique and special Davidite. This son of David, which David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David calls him Lord. When in a Jewish mindset, the son is always lesser than the father. Here is David's greater son. This one whom Psalm 2 speaks about will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And precisely because Jesus is a descendant of David, that he has the claim to Israel's throne. That's why both genealogies in, in Matthew and Luke, tracking through Mary and through Joseph, demonstrating that through both of them, Jesus is the rightful heir of David's throne. So he's human and he is king. But listen to this. Listen to this connecting those dots from Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, speaking of Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus is the resurrected Lord. He is God of very God. He's risen victorious, no longer humbled, no longer clothing his glory the exalted Lord, but he's also and remains the God-man. He remains David's son. And that, that's the fascinating thing. When Jesus took on flesh, it wasn't God wearing a flesh suit. He really became man. And in the resurrection, he continues to be a man. Jesus forever will be the glorified God-man. And therefore, he will forever and always be able to intercede for us, be a high priest for us, sympathize with us, help us. And he did that all for us. And then Paul links this in at the end of verse 8, according to my gospel, or as the gospel proclaims. And then the word I want you to write here is certainty. Certainty. And the point is this. What Paul has just told Timothy about Jesus isn't unique. It isn't arbitrary. It isn't Paul's own opinion. Rather, the content of this gospel he appeals to is the uniform message of the gospel. Turn, turn to Galatians chapter 1, because Paul emphatically believes there can only be one gospel. There aren't different gospels. Well, there are different gospels, but there's only one genuine gospel. And so this message that we preach and this Jesus preached in the gospel is certain, fixed, unchanging. Listen to Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now get this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There's only one gospel. The Jesus of the gospel is the Jesus. We don't get to present different gospels with different 
Jesus with a different makeover to make him more acceptable. There, there's one Lord, there's one gospel, and Paul says, Timothy, you've got to fix your mind on You've got to be thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ, realizing he is the resurrected Lord, the son of David, consistent with the gospel that I preach. And it takes effort, and it takes energy, and we can drift, we can slowly drift through little tiny embellishments or little tiny things we leave out. And so we've got to come back again and again to the gospel message, the message that God sent his son to die on a cross for us. He didn't stay dead. On the third day, he was raised. Through faith in his name, we can be reconciled with God. That message, Paul says, moving now into our second point, is the reason he suffers. He's suffering for the gospel's sake. The blank here, though, is trust in the power of the word. So, so Paul first tells Timothy, you've got to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, but secondly, you've got to trust in the power of the word. Verse 9, speaking of this gospel that he preaches, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And it's an amazing statement. Paul, is, as we said, is an old man. He's run his course. He's been a church-planting, church-strengthening missionary all of his adult life as a Christian. He has poured himself into numerous people, and yet at the end he finds himself alone, deserted, in jail, awaiting his execution. And yet he's not discouraged. And his confidence in God and his word is not flagging. Even though he is in chains, Scripture's not. You can chain the messenger, you can sideline the evangelist, but you can never bind the word of God. So our first point here is that our circumstances do not affect its power. Our circumstances do not affect its power. And again, this is something that, that is profound. Paul is in jail. And as best as we understand church history, for the final time, he is not going to be released. He will not have any more missionary trips. He will not go and visit others. It's one of the reasons he's so insistent on Timothy coming and visiting him. And yet, Paul's circumstances do not lessen the power of the Word of God. It's so easy for us to think that we can add power to the Word of God. If you've been in my... Sunday school class these last few weeks. I've tried to make this point emphatically that nothing we can do can add to the power, the authority of God's word. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Luke. Luke 16, where Jesus makes this point emphatically and profoundly clear. Luke 16, we find the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and they both die. One is poor, one is rich. And Lazarus goes to Abraham's side where he's comforted, and the rich man is in torment in Hades. And then a conversation ensues between the rich man in hell and Abraham. We don't know if this is a parable or if this has truly happened. It doesn't exactly follow the, the characteristic parabolic structure, but either way, the point Jesus is making is clear and profound. Because what's eventually going to happen, after the rich man seeks some relief, some salve for himself and is denied, his attention then shifts to the salvation of his brothers. At which point, I want to make it clear, all of us want the same thing. You'll, you'll see the rich man wants his brothers not to perish, but to be forgiven and reconciled with God. 
I hope, I hope that's your desire. You'll see that's Abraham's desire. I think at this point, everyone is on the same page. But where the conflict arises now, Jesus highlights, is over the methodology. How and with what tools are these men, this man's brothers, to be won? How are they to be persuaded? In verse 27, he said of Luke 16, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, this Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of judgment. Now just pause. I hope we can all say a hearty amen. This guy wants something that is good. He wants something that is right. And the conflict that ensues is not over this goal. But look at Abraham's response. Verse 29. This is all in the mouth of Jesus. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Which is to say, they have their Bibles. Let them hear them. And at this... The two paths diverge. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So, so the rich man has got resurrection miracle strategy, right? He's saying they're not persuaded by the scripture, but if somebody they knew came back from the dead, Lazarus, then on his testimony and that powerful miracle, they would believe. And look what Jesus relates to us Abraham says. This is absolutely jaw-dropping when you see it. Verse 31. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's great irony here, of course, because Jesus knows full well he will himself rise from the dead, and he knows full well that that will only further entrench his enemies. But what Jesus is saying is that this this book, this word, you can't add to its power. This plus miracles, this plus resurrection. We could do resurrection, graveside evangelism, a big rally in a graveyard and raise people from the dead, and it would add nothing to the number of people persuaded. It would, it would, no, not a single soul would come to the Lord more than if we simply had this. That, that is what Jesus and Abraham are saying. And that is jaw-dropping. It is counterintuitive. There's a, there's a parallel way that we like to tweak that out. We think to ourselves, if we could just get some big celebrity, if just some powerful word, world leader could become a Christian, then you know, everyone else would follow. And I would say the same logic. If, if people will not be persuaded by the text of Scripture, they won't be persuaded whether Michael Jordan is, is the one witnessing to them or whether um, some foreign dignity or power you can't add to the power of God's word. And the good news that Paul grasps is that means our circumstances can't take away from it. You can't be too shameful. You can't be too weak. You can't be too low, too small, or too bound in chains to somehow detract from Scripture's power. So Paul can boldly say, hey, they've chained me up. I'm in chains. But God's word is not in chains. Which brings us to the second point. God's word can never be bound. Greek's got some nuances to it that the English doesn't share. And one of those nuances is, is a verb tense that emphasizes a past completed action with the emphasis being on present results. I think I might have talked about this before. It's the perfect tense. And, and the way to think about it is something like, if, if I were to say, walking into the exam for the final exam, say, in, in um, geography, I have studied for this exam. 
And what I'm drawing your attention to is not the hours in the past that I studied, but my current preparedness, my current readiness. You could say I'm in the state of having studied. And what Paul says here is the scripture is and has been in the state of being unbound. God, in sending his word, has determined that nothing will stand against it. Listen to some of these passages. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Or Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the same way, when the rains go abroad, things grow. Life is given. God says, I'm going to send my word out. It will accomplish my purpose, he says. That's good news. It'll accomplish God's purpose with or without me. You think of John the Baptist, the very rocks would cry out, Jesus, God can make sons of Abraham from these stones. We have the privilege of participating in God's plan of redemption. But, but he, he, it will succeed with or without us. His word will not fail with or without us. And so the good news for us is whether you're sidelined, whether you are in a position where you feel low and humbled, God's word is just as powerful. Be, be careful on the other side that you don't think that your skill and your wisdom and your wit are somehow making God's word more powerful. The, the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Not Jeremy Kidder, not anyone in this room, but God's word. And Paul tells Timothy, remember the Lord Jesus Trust in the power of the word. And thirdly, endure for the sake of the elect. Endure for the sake of the elect. And what Paul's doing here is he's adding up his first two points. You'll notice that verse 10 begins with a therefore. It says, for this reason, or, or therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so what Paul's saying is this, because I'm keeping in mind Christ Jesus, and because I'm confident in God's word's power, I'm willing to endure. You see how this adds up for a prescription for endurance. The, the implication is, if, if I didn't have my mind focused on Christ, and if I wasn't confident in the power and authority of God's word, then I might be a little unwilling, I might be a little hesitant, I might be a little ashamed to be treated so. And so this, again, all funnels into how do we persevere? How do we make it through trials? How do we make it through discouragement? How do we deal with the fear and the shame that we can feel when we see ourselves through the eyes of an unbelieving world that, that takes our claims as ridiculous? Well, you keep your mind focused on Christ and you trust in the power of the word. And that Paul says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us how he's able to endure shipwrecks and beatings and floggings, betrayal, because he's confident in the word 
is keeping Christ in mind, and therefore he endures for the sake of the elect. Just three points here. First, our suffering advances the gospel. Our suffering advances the gospel. We made this point a few weeks ago, so I'll just treat it lightly here, but never forget this. Our suffering, the suffering of the church, is the vehicle that God is pleased to use to bring his message to the world. Listen to this verse in Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, the sake of his body, that is the church. And when we talked about that, we said, what on earth does Paul mean? He's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And, and when we looked at this, we said, well, it certainly doesn't mean there's anything lacking in the atonement. There's anything lacking when Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus' death and Jesus' death alone is the only thing sufficient to pay for my sins, for your sins, for the world's sins. What's lacking, however, is that Jesus is not on earth physically witnessing, presenting that gospel. He's in heaven. And he's determined that his church should be the messengers delivering the good news. And so in that delivering of good news, there's a certain amount of suffering involved. And that's what Paul says he's soaking up. God uses, he, he uses our suffering for redemptive purposes. Peter makes the same argument in chapter 3. He says, in chapter 2, I mean, of 1 Peter, he, he, he writes to his readers saying, look, it's a pleasing thing in God's sight when one bears up unjustly under sorrows. And then he points them to look what God did with the suffering of Jesus. Look how much salvation, how much redemption he worked. And then he encourages them. He'll, he'll do the same thing with your suffering. Because when we suffer and rejoice, we, we give strong testimony to the value of our great God. Again, no one is impressed when, when a, someone driving a BMW with a, with a Rolex watch you know, says, praise God. But when people lose everything, say when they're imprisoned, falsely, and they're still rejoicing, and they're still praising and trusting in God, what it demonstrates to the world is, wow, the God of Paul must be satisfying. Wow, the God of Paul must be powerful. And so our sufferings, over and over again, the Lord has used as the vehicle to bring the gospel. There's a saying in the early church that the martyr's blood was the seed of the church. So Paul says he's willing to suffer. He's willing to endure for the sake of the elect. Point B, the salvation of the elect is sure. Now this, this passage brings up an interesting question. On the one hand, it uses the term elect, which automatically has predestinarian overtones. I mean, we talked a little bit about that in previous weeks, and we'll talk some more about it now. But, but then it says he's enduring all things so that the elect might be saved. And if you read it, you might think, what is Paul saying? Is he saying there's some possibility that God's elect, God's chosen, those he foreknew before the foundation of the world, is there some possibility they may not be saved? And no, that's not what he's saying at all. The salvation of the elect is sure. The whole notion of election and predestination that Paul uses in, in most of his letters is, is the teaching that God chose us. It's not that ultimately we chose him, but ultimately our choosing of him is predicated and foundationed upon his choice of us, his free choice. Listen to the language of Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It doesn't get much clearer than that. And one of the mysteries we learn is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's only because he has been doing a work in our hearts. He has been drawing us. He chose us before we chose him. He loved us before we loved him. What Paul is not saying is that somehow these people that redeemed the lamb, who, who the Lord knew before the foundation of the world, there's some chance they may not be saved. But rather, what Paul is saying is he wants them to experience salvation. What he's looking at is them becoming saved. Paul knows out scattered in the world are the missing sheep from Christ's fold. And his great desire and his great passion is that the Lord might use him to bring them to faith. And that some of these sheep of the Lord, these, these lost sheep, don't even know him yet. And he wants them to experience salvation. He wants them to come into a, a knowing of the living God. Therefore, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain, and that's the word to focus on the ESV, that they may experience, that they may gain possession of, that they may live this salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's focus is not that there's some danger they may not make it, but rather that they would now, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, that they would come to know the living God. The salvation the elect is sure. And finally, Paul ends this passage where he began it with the source of all gospel blessings. The source of all gospel blessings. And Paul can't speak of this salvation, he can't speak of this gospel without bringing it back to Christ. He wants the elect to obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. And that's just something to stop and think about. Every good thing we have comes from the Lord. Every good thing we have comes through Jesus Christ. He is the source of all gospel blessings. But, but more than that, he's the source of all things. L listen to this passage in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So by him, through him, and for him are all things. That's pretty exhaustive. All things come from him, through him, and exist for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, including Timothy's mind. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. This salvation that Jesus has brought us and wrought for us, Paul says, is with eternal glory. And that's, that's the final point I want to make. That as we think 
rightly about Jesus. We want to get out of our minds unbiblical caricatures of Jesus. We want to focus on the resurrected Lord. I think it's also helpful to, to get out of our minds silly notions of heaven. The chief joy of heaven is God. It's not as though God made a really amazing place. He did. And that this really amazing place is some place that you just can't not want to be at. The joy of heaven is the Lord. This, this glory that Paul says is eternal. I mean, how many of you here, you don't need to raise your hands, but how many of you have made a trip either by car, by plane, to visit the Grand Canyon or to go to some other notable national landmark? People will drive hours to see something glorious. They will pay large amounts of money for glory. They will pay 3D um, IMAX ticket receipts to see something that makes them go, whoa! And they'll get to their Grand Canyon, they'll look over the Grand Canyon, and they'll just... What you're seeing is glory. And, and we're hardwired for glory so that when we see glory, worship and awe come out of our mouth. That's why when people are, are watching a big, spectacular blockbuster movie and big things, people are going, whoa! It's why when people are watching sports, they don't even think about this, right? When you, when you watch the Super Bowl, just pay attention to those who are watching it with you. And when some player is running down the field unexpectedly, getting past some tackles, making it, they're going to get to the end zone. What do people do? They get up off their seats, Right? They're not even conscious they're doing it. And then they start making noise, right? What is that? That is, we are hardwired for glory. And when we see something incredible, when we see something amazing, when we see something wonderful, without even thinking about it, what comes out of our mouth? Praise. And that's good. And all these lesser glories, that's fine. The chief joy of heaven is beholding the glory of God. Because the God who made the Grand Canyon by speaking is that much more glorious. You think the Grand Canyon's impressive. You think some play in a sports game is impressive. You think some explosion in an IMAX theater is impressive. Wait till you see the God who spoke it all into existence. I'm sure heaven will be beautiful. I'm sure heaven will be wonderful. But the chief joy of our salvation We'll behold the glory of God. And in beholding it, we'll be changed. And so Paul tells Timothy, if he's going to make it faithful to the end, he's got to remember the Lord. He's got to trust in the power of the word, and he's got to be willing to endure for the sake of the elect, to be willing to endure the Lord's sheep, knowing that all joy and all blessing and all salvation is from and through and to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we want to fix Christ in our minds. And Lord, we admit that all too often other things come in and crowd him out. That the cares and the concerns of this world distract us. We chase after them. We believe we'll find more delight in them than in him. And so we don't fix our minds on him. So, Lord, we, we pray today that you would work in our hearts, that you would move our hearts so that we would desire and find more satisfaction in thinking about, in meditating on your Son, the risen Lord of glory, than on any movie or 
sports event or whatever it is that's competing with us. Lord, cause us to fix our minds on him. And Lord, we pray that you would work in us a, a growing confidence in your word. That we would understand that our ability to witness doesn't depend on our circumstances, but on your word, which is powerful. And Lord, we pray that confident of that, with our minds fixed on Christ, you would give us the courage and the grace to endure life's trials, life's struggles, faithfully, persevering, so that your lost fold could be brought home. Lord God, we pray that you would work all of this in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I dismiss you, I'd just like to remind you that we'll be having a quarterly congregational meeting in this room at half past, and following that, we'll be having a joint ABF discussing any questions you may have from this morning's message or any other questions you have. It'll be a time of Q&A and discussion. So I look forward to seeing you back here. Again, if you're a church voting member, we'd, we'd really call on you to keep your commitment to be here. We'll see you at 1030. God bless.